0: chapter 32. We'll be looking at Job 32, the first few verses, and then Job 33. Just a a note for those of you who are in the auditorium, uh, at the end of the service, um, if we could just dismiss, there won't be ushers to dismiss you, but those who are in the back of you would just leave first, and then we'll just make our way out safely in that way. Let's open then our Bibles to the book of Job. And we are to uh, chapter 32, a significant new section in our study of the book of Job. I'm going to read the first five verses of, of Chapter 32, and then we're going to go to chapter 33, and we'll read that in its entirety. So these three men, that would be Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, they ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And so he uh, begins by addressing the three friends, and then he turns to Job in chapter 33, and Elihu will now rebuke Job. Let's give our attention. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives, gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words before, in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. That he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts Him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Lord Jesus Christ, You are the author of these words, and we thank You that You delight to magnify Yourself in them, and we ask for Your Spirit now, Lord, so that not only will You speak, but that we will hear, that You will open our ears today, that we might hear the voice of God speaking into our life, and know that we've heard from God today, and it was good. It brought light and life. And we give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we come to a new section in the book of Job uh, today. We've uh, been, um, from chapter 4 through 31, uh, listening as Job has this ongoing conversation and argument with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, Job has been both arguing with them and crying out, to the Lord, but at the end of chapter 31, we read the words of Job have ended. Job is done talking, and and so apparently are the three friends. We don't hear from them again. But even though that conversation has ended, nothing has been resolved. Job seems to have won the argument. He silenced his friends, but he hasn't solved the riddle of his suffering. He's just as confused about it as he was at the beginning. And so that's where we're left at the end of chapter 31. The fundamental questions of the book are all still there. They're all hanging in the air. Why has this happened to a righteous man like Job? Where is God in his suffering? Why doesn't God answer? Why doesn't he do anything? And so those questions hang in the air and Elihu now steps to the stage at a critical point then in the book. Job's devastation is still a mystery. It makes no sense to him. And maybe we can sense it doesn't make sense to us really either. Even though we know chapters 1 and 2. How do we make sense of his suffering? A God who does this to his children. How do we make sense of our own suffering? What do you do when your heavenly Father seems to have failed to protect you? He seems to have failed to protect you from a tragedy. And then He seems silent as you grieve, as you suffer. And it's your Father in heaven. Well, we experience those sorts of circumstances. We experience tragedies and heartaches. As I mentioned the letter that I received an email from uh, from Maine this week, it's completely unexpected news of cancer for their 29-year-old daughter. I've been in conversations this week with several people who are experiencing searing pain in their marriages. Uh, There are parents whose children are not walking with the Lord and they secretly wonder why the Lord doesn't answer their prayers. And maybe you're this morning in a situation where um, God has brought some great heartache or hardship to your life and, and, uh, and it's your father who's brought this and you don't know how to reconcile it and then you can't figure out why he doesn't speak to you. Why, did, why doesn't he answer your prayer? How do we make sense of the Lord's seeming absence and silence in our moments of greatest need? Well, that's the question that uh, Elihu has set himself to answer. I just want to give you a warning. Through the message, I might say Elihu or Elihu. They're pronounced both ways, and I just sort of got into the habit of, of whatever comes out. Is, was. Um, so just so he's getting it wrong. Well, if you want to instruct me, have at it, but I've, I've done my research on this, and it seems both are appropriate. Uh, Elihu, it's very similar to Elijah in the Hebrew, and so I think that's probably the, the, the best way, but we'll leave that alone. What do we make of Elihu? Let's start there. What do we make of Elihu? There's a lot of disagreement. That's why I asked the question. There's a, there's a raging controversy, actually, about what to make of Elihu. Uh, is Elihu a faithful, true messenger sent from God to speak true wisdom into Job's life, or is Elihu just a younger version of the three friends? Is he just this young, arrogant windbag who's regurgitating all the same garbage that Job got from uh, his three friends? And uh, like I said, there's a great controversy. I, I, I listened to several sermons this week. Two of them were uh, men uh, who are convinced that Elihu is um, a bad character. In fact, one of them said that Elihu is, is the worst of the counselors uh, because he's um, he sounds so good uh, and and yet he uh, he has no real concern for Job's pain. He doesn't acknowledge Job's grief. So he's the worst sort of a counselor. Well, there are others who believe that Elihu actually um, is sent from God, and uh, even we could think of Elihu as sort of a John the Baptist figure, someone who is sent ahead of God to prepare the way of the Lord. And I think, actually, that's what we find happening here, that Elihu has um, some wisdom to say, some to speak, and, and things that Job needs to hear to prepare Job for when God shows up. And so I think this positive view of Elihu is, is, uh, is more accurate. And I'll give you just three reasons why I think that's supported by the text. One is that Elihu himself thinks that he's adding something to the conversation. And he, in chapter 32, we read that he was angry with the three friends because they were not able to answer Job. They accused him of wrong, but they had no evidence of wrong. And so he says in chapter 32, verse 12, to the friends, he said, I gave you my attention and behold, there was none among you who who refuted Job or who answered his words. They failed. And then he says in verse 14, I will not answer him, Job, with your speeches. So Elihu clearly thinks that he's bringing something new to the table. Another, uh, I think, evidence is that Job doesn't argue with Elihu. He's been arguing all along with his three friends, but he's silent, and Elihu gives him opportunity. There are four speeches here in the next six chapters, and between every speech, Elihu will pause, and he'll say, now Job, if you've got something to say, listen, I'm here, I'm all ears, talk to me. We saw that at the end of chapter 33, and yet Job never does. He never responds, and that's, that's insightful, I mean, that's, that's uh, intriguing in light of Job's vociferous responses uh, to his three friends. It, it, it seems that Job finds something in Elihu's messages that is worth pondering. There seems to be things that make some sense or that are, are wise. But I think the most uh, impressive argument is that um, God doesn't rebuke Elihu. At the end of the book, we'll note that God rebukes strongly Eliphaz and his two buddies. But Elihu is not rebuked. There seems to be uh, the sense in the book that Elihu actually does say things that are meaningful, things that are important, things that we need to hear, things that are true. So what does Elihu have to say? That'll be our second point. I think there are two things particularly that we see here that Elihu adds to the conversation. Uh, The first um, is that Job has been wrong to justify himself at God's expense. If you see in uh, chapter thirty, verse 32, verse 2, we read that uh, Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Job seemed more intent on proving his righteousness than in proving God's righteousness. And uh, Elihu is not just making the charge without evidence, Elihu says, I'm going to use your own words to prove my point and make my case. So verse chapter 33, verse 8. Surely you've spoken in my ears. I heard what you said. I've heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. Now, it might sound, his, it, his rebuke might sound similar to that of uh, the three friends. But there's a significant meaningful difference. The three friends charged Job with sin because he was suffering. They just connected the dots, right, in their system, their framework, those who... Um, those who uh, have are under god's favor flourish those who are under god's wrath um, suffer job is suffering he must be under god's wrath it must be because of sin this is very easy if job will just repent uh, the suffering goes away and the good times come back that's not what elihu is saying um, he's not saying job you're you're it's clear you've sinned therefore you're suffering what he says is job you're suffering and in your suffering you're sinning in your suffering, you're sinning. You're not talking about God correctly. In vehemently defending your own righteousness, you have denied or at least questioned God's righteousness. In defending your integrity, you've challenged God's integrity. That, that's a big deal. And Job has, I think, been guilty of this. I, if, if, if Remember back in chapter 30... Um, Job has charged God with being apathetic and cruel. Chapter 30, verse 20, he says, Job says to God, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Just no concern, no care. We see the horror of that with the police officers who watched as, as, as George Floyd was killed. Okay, that, is, that is so evil what those men did. And Job is saying, well, that's, that's what God's doing. He's just, he's just standing there. He's watching. He's not engaging. He's not doing anything. You have turned cruel to me, he says to God. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. And that's been the greatest pain in Job's life, right? The, the greatest pain has not been the loss of his children, as awful as that is. But God's silence. Why doesn't God answer? Why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't God defend me? And the only conclusion that Job can draw is that God is apathetic or maybe even cruel. And Elihu admonishes him. You are not right in this, Job. You cannot charge God in that way. Now again, we can understand why Job felt that way. Maybe you have suffered through a lengthy Trial, painful trial, some great loss, some uh, maybe a season of deep depression, and God seemed to be silent. Right? Have you ever just had the experience where you you you're praying, but you just have a sense that your prayers are not getting above the ceiling? Heaven seems like brass, and. And you weep in your pillow, you see, because not only the, the pain of your circumstance, but the, the heartache of, of why isn't God responding. I read a, a, a very interesting book a few, uh, just a couple of months ago written by Andrew Brunson. If you remember, he was the uh, American missionary who was uh, imprisoned in Turkey. And it becomes, it was I believe, like 18 months. And it, it, he was there sort of as a pawn in the hand of President Erdogan as he was, uh, Erdogan was trying to make a statement of his strength vis-a-vis the United States, trying to bolster his own approval ratings. And uh, and Brunson's caught in the middle of this. And he writes of the deep anxiety and near panic that was caused him by the seeming silence of God. There's a fascinating portion in there where he's in prison with all these other men and they're all Muslim. And they too have been Uh, unjustly charged, there's no, they're they're there with no evidence, there's no justice anywhere to be seen. They've lost everything, these men. And yet these, these men are, they're not full of anxiety and panic. They're devout Muslims who have a view of God that Allah just wills what Allah wills. He's not, their heavenly, he's not their heavenly father who's, who's supposed to love and protect them. He's, he's just Allah. Allah wills what Allah wills. And there's nothing you can do about it. But Brunson, you see, has a, his view of God is that God is a father. That God is, is, is a caring, loving protector, a shield. And Brunson feels, feels like, well, I haven't been protected why doesn't God answer? So he prays and begs for God to help, to release him, to help him. But but instead of him being released, it just goes from bad to worse to worse. And it was devastating for him. He felt completely abandoned by God. Maybe you've had that sort of experience. You see, we, we do expect God to deliver us to protect us from tragedy maybe or if we're if we have to face the trial then for God to to deliver us maybe quickly through it and when he doesn't the conclusion we quickly draw is that either he is punishing us for some sin that we need to confess and, and so we're just right we're we're in the system or that God just doesn't care but but Elihu comes and says, that is not the only possible conclusions that, that, that can be drawn. And that leads us to Elihu's second point, that God is, actually is speaking. He's not silent at all. Job's charge has been, God will not answer a man. And, and Job has said, you know he doesn't have to answer a man, he's God, so, so what, what can we do? But, but Elihu comes back and says, no, Job, God is a speaking God. He speaks at least in two ways, though man does not perceive it. We don't recognize it as speaking, but it is. And, and Elihu points out two ways this happens one, visions and dreams. Verse 15 In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Remember, this is before the Bible exists. There's no Moses yet. There's no Bible at all. So how does God reveal himself? Well, one of the ways that God would do that would be through dreams and visions. Uh, if you remember um, Abimelech, remember uh, when, when Abraham said uh, Sarah was his sister, because Abraham was afraid, and Abimelech said, well, she's a very attractive sister. And so Abimelech took her into his home. And then we read in chapter twenty, Genesis 20, verses 2, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Well, that got his attention. That prevented him from committing some grievous sin. You know that? Now, this happened right around the time of Job. Right? If Job was a contemporary of Abraham, this would be right in the same uh, period of, of redemptive history. Uh, Elihu could have easily maybe have used that story. So God speaks in that way, through dreams and visions. But there's another way that God speaks. And Elihu points this out in verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. God is speaking. Rebuke is a speech. Um, what is God doing then, we can ask, through uh, as He speaks, through visions and through pain? Well, notice He's doing something merciful. He's doing something gracious and good, When he came to Abimelech, it was to prevent Abimelech from committing a great sin. So he turned Abimelech aside. It's exactly what you see in verse 16. He opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Keep him from pride. This is is stated even more explicitly in chapter 36, 15, where Elihu says, He that is God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. That's quite a statement. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. And so Elihu's point, and and this is essential to pay attention, Elihu's central point is that God does not have a speaking problem as Job has charged, but people have a hearing problem. People don't perceive, verse 14, that God is speaking. So God uses pain to open men's ears so that they might hear God's instruction. Derek Thomas says, pain is educative. Pain has an educational value and power. It is able to reach us in a unique way. Boys and girls, maybe you've noticed this. Have you, as, your, as your mom ever said to you, don't do such and such. And so you vaguely heard her, but such and such was quite a bit of fun. And so you continued on with such and such. And then maybe mom said it a little louder. Uh, I said, don't do it. You heard her maybe a little more clearly, but after a few moments, that, that uh, speech kind of faded into the fog of the past, and you were back to such and such. And then out comes the paddle. And what suddenly happens your ears get open. You suddenly hear, right, in a brand new way, a painful way, but an effective way. It suddenly becomes clear to you, mom doesn't want us to do such and such. Pain has been an educational tool. Well, God is a heavenly father. And he's told us, right, don't do such and such. Or God knows we're headed for such and such. And he's going to stop us before we get there. But he needs to get our attention. And when we are living carefree, pain-free lives of comfort and pleasure, the fact is that it becomes hard for us to hear To really hear God. When life is good, it's easy to be deaf to God. And so God uses pain to open our ears. C.S. Lewis famously speaks of this in the problem of, of pain. He writes, pain is an evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so that is the very enlightening insight introduced by Elihu. Job has charged God with being silent in his time of trial. But what if the problem was not that God was silent, but that Job was deaf? What if God was speaking then in the adversity, but Job was so busy justifying himself and demanding God's deliverance, his help, that Job couldn't hear what God had to say? What if God was in fact turning Job aside from some future sin? Now we're not told that, but Elihu is suggesting, isn't that a possibility? Isn't that what he does? He turns men to conceal them from pride, keep them from pride? See, I think this is a a radical new way of thinking about trials and and about God in trials. Because I think it's, it's so common for us when we are facing some pain or adversity to ask God for help, not for instruction, not for education, but help. And and, and we ask God for help and then we interpret the lack of response as the as the trial lingers on. It's easy for us to interpret that lack of response as God's silence. God doesn't care. God's abandoned me. But what if God was talking to you in the trial itself? What if the trial was God's voice? And God was, was up to something good. You see, what that would mean, that, that the trial is not His anger. God isn't punishing you. The trial is, is God's mercy. He sees something in, in, in our life that in love He wants to move us away from or free us from. And so he acts in love, opens our ears to receive instruction. I think that's exactly what the psalmist means in Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your decrees, your statutes, your laws. I needed to learn those things, and and the affliction helped me to learn them. Do you remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, that Jesus learned obedience through what? what he suffered. Now, Jesus was not deaf to God. And so I, I think Jesus' learning there is, is entirely on our, for our sake. He's willing to humiliate himself and, 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 and lower himself and, and suffer even that so that we might learn how, uh, how God's pedagogy works. Now, that truth that God is speaking in mercy is, to turn us from sin and conceal us from pride, to deliver us from, from the pit, that doesn't make the pain go away. And Elihu isn't trying to make the pain go away. He's not saying just get over it. It doesn't make the pain go away. What it will do is it will bring peace to your heart. Because that would mean that your God isn't absent. He's not absent. Not at all in any way. And He's not punishing you. He's not neglecting you. That he's engaged in your life, maybe more than you've ever known, doing soul surgery with infinite love to rescue you from you. Because if you are not rescued from you, you cannot be saved. That that, that changes everything. So that God is, is in that trial. Revealing your wickedness and your weakness so that you might more fully delight in his grace and trust in his power. Isn't that exactly what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul speaks about this experience he had of, of uh, you know, I know a man who was, uh, right, he was lifted up into the heavens. And and um, I think that was Paul. And, and Paul then will say, So he had this incredible vision of the glory of God and then he'll say to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh. God did something in Paul's life to keep him from pride because pride is deadly. So this thorn is given, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's what God was doing in Paul's life. And Elihu is suggesting... Job, maybe that's what he's doing in your life. You may have heard before this wonderful poem by John Newton, Prayers Answered by Crosses, where Newton reflects on the same truth. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Isn't that what we want? Uh, you know, Lord, we go to bed at night. You know, Don't just forgive me, but change me, transform me. By tomorrow morning, we'd be great. Right? If we, wouldn't that be nice? You go to sleep and you wake up tomorrow morning and sin is subdued. Well, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds. The gourd is what Job was, uh, Jonah was trying to hide under, right? To protection from the sun. So this little bit of comfort Jonah found, God killed it. Newton says, that's exactly what happened, God did. Blasted my gourds and laid me low, Lord. Why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ to, from self and pride, to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joys, that thou may seek thy all in me. God speaking. God's instructing in trials. Times of trial, weakness, suffering, force us to acknowledge we need help. We cannot save ourselves. But notice how Elihu then moves to talk about someone who can save, a mediator and a redeemer, and we'll close with that. In verse 23, there's this wonderful shift. uh, Elihu says, If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down in the pit. I have found a ransom. Eli is suggesting that there, if, if there's a person like that, someone who can say to God, I deliver this man. He's sinned. Yes, he has. There's a debt. Yes, there is. But I found a ransom. I found someone willing to pay the debt. So set him free. Well, that's, that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done, friends. It's exactly what Jesus has done. He says to the Father, deliver this man, deliver this woman, deliver this child. I have set them free, I have found a ransom, the penalty has been paid. And God grants the request of Jesus. He always grants the request of Jesus. Because Jesus speaks what is true, a price has been paid. And Jesus then as our mediator and redeemer then opens the way of access so that we can pray. Verse 26, there's, you know, 23 is if, 26 is then. Then, given we have a mediator and redeemer, then man prays to God and God accepts him. Then the man sees God's face with a shout of joy and, and God restores to man his righteousness. He sings that the man who's been delivered sings before men and he says I sinned and I perverted what was right and it was not repaid me Job's three friends had been insisting you do the crime you do the time That's how God works He pays back for your sins The way to get under God's out of God's judgment is do better And that's not the gospel, and that's not Elihu's message, and that's not what the song of the redeemed is. The song of the redeemed is, I sinned, I perverted what was was right, but it was not repaid to me. I've been redeemed from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. That's the song of the redeemed. That a mediator and a redeemer has been found. And and, and friend, again, just pointing us wonderfully to Jesus Christ. If you ever think that God is silent, please, please remember, He has spoken to us in the most intimate, amazing way possible. He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Logos. He's the voice of God. He's the messenger, fairer than 10,000. And He speaks peace to us, grace and mercy and peace to you and to me in the midst of our trial. And we can know that God accepts us because we have a Redeemer. Not because you're trying harder, not because you've made certain promises, but you have a Redeemer, a man, a a God-man who has made us righteous, right? God restores to man his righteousness. It's exactly what he's done for you and me in Jesus, robing us in the righteousness of Christ. And because that's true, we have a song to sing. I sinned, but it was not repaid to me. God does not deal with me according to my sin, but according to his steadfast love and mercy in Jesus Christ. And God has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. That's a conviction, you see, that we can have in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. My life, I will look upon the light, the glory of God. And so, friends, God does speak in pain, but it's temporary, right? The trial is temporary, the glory is forever. And, and because of Jesus Christ, we can have hope that brings even joy in pain and perseverance in the trial and a song in the suffering. And may God grant this to you. Let me just encourage you the next time, you, or maybe you're there today, but in the trial, instead of asking God just to remove it, ask, just say, Lord, speak, your servant hears. What, what do you want me to see about me? What idols do you want to expose in my life? What truth do you want to make more clear to me? And then trust that the Lord will show you that. And that the most important thing in the trial is not that the trial goes away. The most important thing is the thing that God is after. That you hear and that you learn and that you receive. And above all, that you see your trial in the context of your Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for you, went into the pit for you, so you will never have to. And that this trial will produce that day when you will stand in the presence of God without spot and with great joy. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you do not deal with us as our sins deserve, but you reward us according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all that he's accomplished. You have redeemed us, bought us back from death and hell by the blood of our Savior, and that we have a song to sing, even though, Lord, it might be through tears. I pray for your people, your church, your church, I pray particularly for those who are in the midst of a great trial, that they will be able to, to hear your voice as you instruct them, as you turn them, as you help them. Lord, not only in uh, giving them endurance in, in the trial, but Lord, that that they would hear the voice of Jesus, and that they'd be open to considering um, what, what idols or sins Jesus might be either turning them from or preventing them from and that we would see then mercy and grace and kindness and that God would seem so near and so good and that, Lord, we would have the absolute confidence that all the, the love of God for us in Jesus Christ means that this trial will end up for our good forever and we will sing the song of the redeemed in this life and in the life to come.